this evening as we work through the Bible together. Uh, on the back of your outline or your notes, you can see an outline which you're not going to pay any attention to. Uh, that's Rod's outline, which is a really good sermon. Hopefully you get a chance to preach it again sometimes. Uh, but if you try to put my notes in there, it won't fit. So I suspect that probably what you need to do is, if you're taking notes, just take a write very small under point four. That's all I can suggest for this evening. But thank you for uh, having me here this evening. Will you join me in prayer? Our Lord God, none of us like to admit this because we like to show that we are capable of our own. But without you at work in us, we would never open your word, we would never believe your word, we would never understand your word, and we would never put it into practice. And so we want to ask you that in your kindness you would visit us and enlighten our darkened hearts by the work of your spirit. Amen. Well, last night, oh, hang on, there we go. Last night, you can see that these pictures from last night. Um, many of us watched the coronation of King Charles III. It was a coronation that was full of pomp and history and tradition and colour. And I'm sure that as you watched it, if you did watch it last night, that many people will have watched it with different degrees of emotional response to it, different levels of attachment to it, and different attitudes to what you were seeing and what occurred. But alongside what was happening on our television screens as well, our Prime Minister, with the leaders of the other 149 Commonwealth countries, our Prime Minister, who is a lifelong committed Republican, would have been expected to do what we saw the Archbishop of Canterbury do and Prince William do. What they did was they knelt and they vowed allegiance to the King. And so I was left wondering, how is it possible that our Prime Minister can be a Republican, a lifelong Republican, and declare allegiance to this King? I think there are two reasons, and both of them are actually fairly valid. The first one is the Prime Minister represents Australia, and he is acknowledging that this country is still a constitutional monarchy. And despite whatever his own personal beliefs might be, he represents our country in doing that. That's a fair thing to do. Secondly, though, the second reason is there's actually not much at stake in swearing allegiance to the new king. Declaring allegiance is merely ceremonial. It's what you do because it is coronation day. Swearing allegiance doesn't have long-term implications. After all, how can the allegiance last? What has the monarch ever done for me? What's he ever done for you? What's he ever done for this country? We hardly pay attention to the monarchy, except in the gossip pages of the newspapers or in our news feeds. And what can he do, what can the monarch do if we change our minds about allegiance? Is he going to send that gold carriage over and run us over? So you can actually do whatever you like after you've pledged allegiance because everyone knows that not much rests on what happens if you change the way that you treat the king because what happened yesterday was just a ceremonial response. 
In fact, it was interesting, on Friday night when Youth Group was on, I was watching free-to-air television while I was waiting for Youth Group to finish, and programs ran that tried to show us how important the King was and how we, how we must follow him, how special he was. So there was one program that said, he is an advocate of overcoming global warming and climate change, so therefore he should be our King. Another program said he works so very hard for our good. A third one says he's just like us, he has simple tastes, he likes quiche. And all those, all those things might be true, but that is not enough to ensure that Australia will keep its vow of allegiance. Because it really doesn't matter what the Prime Minister did this weekend, what he did this weekend will soon blow over because the position that the King carries has no influence over me. The power, the majesty of the King just isn't breathtaking. But this evening we are thinking about another King, the real King, the one who matters, in fact the only one and true King. And he is nothing like what happened at Westminster Abbey last night. In Westminster Abbey, about 24 hours ago, the whole congregation in a united voice said, May the King live forever. And I'm here to tell you, he won't. But the King we are thinking about tonight does live forever, our true King. His name is King Jesus and he holds your current and your eternal destiny in his hands. He always has done that and he always will and he is breathtakingly powerful. And so we cannot just as people will have done yesterday say things with our mouths, declare things with our mouths but with our heart we have no intention of fulfilling. You cannot both recognise this, this King, King Jesus and ignore him at the same time. And that's what we'll see time after time as we work our way through this letter to the Hebrews. And so let's start to delve into it. This letter is called the Letter to the Hebrews. It's actually a good name because we're not certain who wrote the letter and we don't know the names of the recipients, but one thing we do know is that they are Hebrews, they're Jews, and that's why it's called the Letter to the Hebrews. The Hebrews are God's chosen people, Though God created the whole world, God created every race, every culture, everything in this world, he especially chose the Hebrews and they could date their history from the time of Jesus back 2,000 years, from the time of the writing of this letter back 2,000 years. And as they were able to cast their minds back over their history, it was obvious that God had always been with them. They were chosen by God, they were adopted by God, they were given the promises by God that he would be their God. It was to them that God had specially and intimately revealed himself. God spoke to this nation, God fought for this nation, God gave them victory even when it was impossible that they would be victorious and he saved them. They knew, these Hebrews, that they were special because the God of the universe was their God and he was on their side. And they could look back at this wonderful history and they could say, God is our God. And so our letter opens in verse 1 
long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Here is the God of the universe, the God who is invisible, the God who is distant. And yet this God takes the time to speak to this nation. That is the closeness of relationship that he has with them. And as he spoke to them, he spoke to them promises and they are fantastic promises. Just to give you some of the examples that are picked up here in Hebrews. Psalm chapter 2, if you're taking notes, we're not going to read the Psalms, but if you're taking notes, go home and read them. Psalm chapter 2. In Psalm chapter 2, you've got all of the nations of the world ganging up and rebelling against God. And as God sees that they are rebelling against him and against his nation of the Hebrews, Israel, God looks at them and he laughs. And he says, I have set my king on Zion, that is Jerusalem, the capital city of the, of the Hebrews. And he says, my king is my son and I will give to my son all of the nations. And the image that he uses is the son will have a big rod of iron and the nations are like a clay pot and he will smash the nations. That's what God will do. And so he laughs at these nations that stand against the Jewish people. Or in Psalm chapter 80, 89th Psalm, there these Hebrews, this nation of Israel, sing of God's steadfast love, the way that God will always fulfil his commitments. God will always do what he promises to do. God will always stand beside his people. And it's seen especially in his promise to their King David. And he says in Psalm 89, I will establish your offspring forever. I will build your throne for all generations. Or over in Psalm 110, in that psalm there is a promise of a man who will rule with a mighty scepter, a mighty rod, and he will shatter any kings who stand against him. Or in the Old Testament passage that Grig read to us a moment ago from 2 Samuel chapter 7, I will establish the throne of your offspring forever. If you're a Jew, if you're a Hebrew, you could not want more than that. The God of the universe, the all-powerful God of the universe, has promised that you will rule forever. One of the offspring of King David will rule forever. But at the time when the Hebrews received this letter, that wasn't the case. They were, in fact, captives in their own land. The Romans ruled over them. They couldn't do what they wanted. They had to do what the Romans said. And even so, the Hebrew people, because of these promises of God, thought that this captivity would be short-lived. It's a little bit like Australia when we play cricket. You know how we used to be number one in cricket? And over the years we slip down and you know we go further down. Everybody thinks, it's not going to last long. Soon we'll be back to number one. Or China, the 20th century for them was a, a century of humiliation, but they knew that they would rise again. Or back in 2020 when COVID hit, particularly in the United States, there were so many people who were thinking COVID is just like getting a cold. And so they held COVID parties and they took bets on who would get COVID first. It's not going to last very long, it will soon be over. That's what the Jewish people thought as well. 
because their humiliation at the hand of the Romans would not last. It would not last because God made promises and he would keep his promises. What is God going to do now that they are under the hands of the Romans? Over 2,000 years, God had spoken through his prophets, clearly and powerfully promised great things, but he had spoken intermittently and the promises remained unfulfilled. What is going to change? Chapter 1, verse 2. But in these days... He has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purifications for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. When I finished uni, I was living with a man his father is a famous neurosurgeon and his father, because of his position, was ever so busy. My flatmate told me that two days before his 18th birthday, he received a letter in the mail. It was written by his father's secretary and and the letter said, I hope you have a really good time on your birthday. But then two days later... On his birthday, my flatmate's father came home fairly late and they just passed each other in the hallway and the father said to my flatmate, Happy birthday, son. And my flatmate said that was all that mattered. Three words. The letter, it was lovely that his dad had remembered the birthday, but it came written by the secretary, typed up. Happy birthday, son. And that is what you see happening here in this first paragraph of Hebrews. God spoke through the prophets. That is wonderful. But now he has spoken through his son. And here are seven things, just in these couple of verses, verses 2 and 3, that you see about this one who speaks, this son. Firstly, you can see them there on the screen behind me, he is the one who is appointed heir of all things. That is, there is nothing that has ever been made in this creation that he doesn't own. And the reason why he owns it, secondly, is because it is he who created the world. Everything that exists has been fashioned by the hands of the Son. So this body of mine, your body, has actually been created by the Son of God, by King Jesus. And he is the radiance of the glory of God. We don't use the word glory very often, but glory is weightiness, heaviness, brilliance. It is the sort of thing that you so want to look at because it is so glorious, but you have to avert your eyes as well because it is so dazzlingly beautiful. That's what God is like. You want to look at him, but you can't stare at him. But when you see the sun... Jesus, who walked on earth 2,000 years ago, you see the dazzlingness of God himself. And the Son is the exact imprint of his nature. You see that with some kids, don't you? Sometimes children look so much like their mum or so much like their dad. You hear them say, oh, she's a chip off the old block because she looks just like her mum. 
Well, when you see Jesus, you see exactly what God is like as well. Fifthly, he upholds the universe by his word of power. It's not just that he created everything, he keeps everything going. Your heart is beating. My heart is beating now because Jesus is willing it. The blood is flowing through your arteries and veins because Jesus is willing it. Those electrical impulses that are going from your brain to parts of your body that's making your body work is because Jesus is willing it. The bricks are holding their form because Jesus is willing it. He upholds the universe now by his word of power. And so you are held in his hand and you only exist because he wills that to be the case. uh, Sixthly, after making purification for sins, there is so much we could spend the whole time looking at just those few words. But to put it simply, we are broken people in a broken world. We have been made by God and we malfunction. And God has every right to do away with we malfunctioning beings. But Jesus the Son takes us who are malfunctioning and broken and purifies us. That is worth having so that we are acceptable to God the Father. If you don't know what I am talking about, make sure you talk to Andy about coming to life and talk to each other and say, please make sense of this for me. And finally, in verse 3, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. You sit down only when things are finished. Now, some of you will know that you get nagged by your parents or you get nagged by your flatmates or you get nagged by your spouse. You come home and the place is a mess and you sit down and they get grumpy with you because there's work to be done. You only sit down when the work is finished. And what has the son done? He has sat down at the right hand of the majesty of heaven. Everything that needs to be accomplished by him, he has done. And so if you missed it, as great as the past was for the Hebrews, what Jesus is, is so much better. Hungry Jacks is better. Jesus is better. And the rest of the chapter is about now angels. Now I know angels and demons are big on Netflix, there's lots of movies about them, but we don't normally think much about them because we really don't think that they are real, they are just what you have in fantasy and on television. But the Hebrews knew that angels were real, that they were powerful and they were special and they were a gift of God. So as they look back over their 2,000 years of dealing uh, with God, Uh, What we saw was the angels, what they knew was that the angels were the agents that God used in his relationship with the Hebrews. So God spoke through the angels. God related to the Hebrews through his angels. The angel of the Lord is the one who gave them victory and who fought for them when they couldn't fight for themselves. God protected through his angels and he made his plans known to the Hebrews through his angels. And so if you Google about Hebrew and Jewish ways of thinking about angels, you'll see there is so much written about the archangel Michael and the archangel Gabriel and other angels as well. Raphael is one of them. I don't know anything about Raphael. 
Modern Orthodox Jews think that new angels are formed as boys go through their bar mitzvahs so that they can be protected by the angels. Angels are really big time for Jewish people because they have a very special place in Hebrew thinking about how God works. Because God is in heaven, we are here on earth, and the angels powerfully stand between God and his people, doing the work of God for his people. And in the rest of this chapter, we will see that if you think angels are special, and they are, Jesus is even better. And so verse 4 is a good summary. Having become as much superior to the angels as the name that he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And so it just rolls out. I'm not going to spend much time on this. Basically just read you the chapter again. And so in verse 5, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Who did God ever say that to one of the angels? See, Jesus is not just an angel, as great as they are, he is the son. And so in verse 6, let all God's angels worship him. You don't worship something that is less than you, you only worship that which is greater than you, and as great as the angels are, they worship the son because he is the son of God. And in verse 7, what are angels? He makes his angels winds, his ministers a flame of fire. That is, angels are spirits sent out by God. But what is the Son? Verse 8, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The angels run around doing the bidding of God. The Son is God. And by the way, when the Jehovah's Witnesses come and knock on your door and say that Jesus isn't God, do point to verse 8. It's clear clear and unambiguous, isn't it? About the Son, your throne, O God. The Son is God. And look at how the Son exercises his rule. Verse 8. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and you have hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Last night, you can see King Charles is holding two scepters, that is, two rods. What he is holding are meant to represent love, the, uh, the power and the authority that is given to him to be used for good government. What is the scepter of the sun? It is that he loves righteousness and hates hates wickedness. Isn't that what we want to see in our world? When you see a world where people abuse other people, don't you want to bring an end to that? Where you see governments crushing their own people for their own selfish purposes, don't you want to see an end to that? Don't you want to see a world where people embrace each other and do what is good and right? That is the scepter of the sun. Loves righteousness hates wickedness. And I don't know whether King Charles will be able to use his scepters to do anything, but I know one thing. One day he will die and his rule will come to an end. And so that's the end of the power of his scepter. But not so the sun. Look at verse 10. You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish but you remain. They'll all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You'll roll them up like a garment. They'll be changed. But you are the same and your years will have no end. 
The Son is eternal. The Son who holds those scepters of righteousness and the overthrow of wickedness will not come to an end. Now all this talk of angels and comparing them to the Son I think is fairly foreign to us. What does it all mean? Well, here is the summary. There are angels and they are not the creepy ones of the Netflix and movie, but they are given by God to help his people. Verse 14 of chapter 1. Are angels not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? God has sent to you, if you're a Christian, his angel to help you because he is saving you. Isn't that wonderful news? Now, we will all want to say, well, where are the, where are the angels? What have they done for me? How can I tell who they are? And I've got to say to you, that's not what he's interested in. God sends his angels to help you no matter what you are facing in this world. God isn't distant. He has sent his angels to help you through it They don't have wings, they're not so bright or anything like that. You can't even tell sometimes. In fact, I think quite often. But God protects his own in ways that are invisible to us. And as the angels protect God's people, verse 13, the son sits at his right hand until his enemies are made a footstool for his feet. Like I said before, sitting is the symbol of certain victory. The enemies of God, the enemies of God's people, no matter how scary and powerful they appear to be, will just become in time something that God the Son will rest his feet on. God the Son is your king. He is the real king. He is the real king with absolute power. And he is not a fairy tale king either. All powerful, all good, active to protect. Take heart. I don't know what difficulties you've gone through, you're going through or you will go through. But no matter what the difficulties of life are, he sits victorious and he sends just what you need to help. The last 24 hours have been full of pomp and symbolism, but it is just that, pomp and symbolism. The king will not live forever, King Charles. He will not be able to use his scepter to bring about justice, that justice that we all want. And the promises of allegiance that the rulers of countries have made will fade. People will forget the promises or they'll ignore them. That is the danger that the Hebrews had because while Hebrews are those people who'd had 2,000 years of relationship with God, there is a smaller group of the Hebrews, and it's the group this letter is written to, who are not just Hebrews but Hebrews who have recognised the Son. And as they gave themselves to the Son, they were persecuted, they were despised, they were humiliated, they were imprisoned and yet they continued to give themselves to the Son. So over in chapter 10, don't look it up, I'll just read it to you. In chapter 10, verse 32, 
Here is what it was like when they first understood who Jesus was and gave themselves to him. Recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes publicly being exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those who were so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, don't throw away your confidence which you have as a great reward. In the midst of the persecution, they held fast to Jesus. But here is where they are like us. As time goes by, when life gets a little bit easier, it is so easy to become complacent and to forget the importance of allegiance. That is their problem and that is our problem. I like comfort. I like ease. And so it is just easy to make other things more important than Jesus. And so hear the warning, because it's a warning that comes down through two millennia to us in that first paragraph of chapter 2. Therefore... Since Jesus is so much better and so much more powerful than the angels, therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord... <clears throat> me. And it was attested to us by those who heard, who God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. See what the paragraph is saying? He's saying, if when angels spoke, you didn't pay attention to it, you were judged for it. When the Son speaks, how much more the judgment will be. So make sure you listen. Wild Street Archie, make sure you listen. There are two words in this paragraph, though, that terrify me. I don't know what words you might think they are, but I'll tell you the two that terrify me. First one, the word drift. Verse three, the word neglect. Because no one wakes up one morning and says, I'm going to give up on Jesus. I don't care about the son anymore. I'm not going to give him allegiance. That doesn't happen. What happens over time is that people just drift away. They get to hear the words of the son. Think that the ease and comfort of this life is what we are living for. And the right to the Hebrews writes to these people and writes to us to warn us against that because certainly we will be judged for doing so. So I am encouraging you, because the writer of the Hebrews does, encourages us not to drift. Keep bowing the knee to King Jesus, the true King who is greater than the angels. Bow the knee to the one who provides purification of sins the one who stands by you in all of your life. And when we see God face to face, 
and all is disclosed and we have nothing to hide behind when we see the king sitting on his throne holding the scepter of his power and he will say, gee, it's good to have you at home. This is the king and the way we relate to him matters for all of eternity. Make sure you don't neglect it. Let's pray. Our Lord God, we thank you that you are always attending your people in visible and invisible ways. We thank you for the way that we can cast all of our anxieties onto you because you care for us. But tonight, having heard these words from chapter 1 of Hebrews, we want to ask you that we will not drift, that we will not neglect, that we will see Jesus in all of his glorious power and goodness. Recognise that and keep bowing the knee to him.